1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Roy Barznes. I am host of the channel. And today I get the privilege of interviewing Dr. Stephen Knobloch, On his most recent work, Bodies and Rhythms Navigating Unconscious Vulnerability and Emotional Fluidity, published uh, by Rutledge this year in 2021. This is Stephen's third book, having offered the musical edge of therapeutic dialogue in 2000 and co authoring Forms of Inner Subjectivity in Research and Adult Treatment. Stephen has a very uh, interesting background, and I want to um, introduce you to him. And not uh, keep out any of the uh, out of the interesting background that he comes from, and is risked actually and chosen, and how that's influenced his work. But um, he began his work with individuals and groups as an undergraduate volunteer with the Community Involvement Council of the University of Pennsylvania in the late 1960s, working with potential gang members involving them in alternative, creative, and recreational activities. He also served as a student representative on a committee to support the development of the first Black Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1970, he moved to New York City pursuing a dual career as a jazz musician and working for the Roosevelt uh, Hospital Community Mental Health Service in welfare hotels on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. During this period, he also worked in group home and treatment program uh, settings. When finishing his graduate studies, Dr. Nablock coordinated the psychological services at The Door, a multi-service treatment model program from 1975 through 1981. From 81 through 88, he headed up a unit that provided training and consultative services to organizations throughout the five continents interested in replicating the program and service delivery strategies for adolescents that The Door represented as a project of United Nations, the International Center for Integrative Studies. Following the attack of 9-11 in New York City, he was recruited to serve as a clinical liaison and consultant from the New York Postdoctoral Program uh, with Field of Music, a program of music and art workshops offered for surviving family members to facilitate recovery and resilience. And in addition to his professional activities in treatment, education, and training, Dr. Nabila continues to play jazz saxophone and study Brazilian percussion traditions, integrating these experiences into his teaching and practices. I met Steve several years ago when I invited him to conduct a seminar for the Relational Perspective Guest Lecture Series at the institution where I teach. Not only was the teaching rich, but Steve embodies his body, his very being, his presence when you are with him. Uh, And so I was also pleased that when I wrote my book uh, Core Competence, that Steve was willing to submit a chapter in my book on uh, patterning and linking and utilizing his musicality and his uh, psychoanalytic thinking on how, where, and how we come to understand our patients. As we were talking before the podcast, um, Steve to me uh, as I kind of embodied the whole idea of the body, like it really penetrates. Uh, him and when I read him, it does that to me too. It reminds me, in my sometimes cognitive analytic mind, to get back to the basics, which is my body, and to feel my patients and attend to all the micro uh, movements um, and attunement and and attune to that which is happening within my body on in response to this patient. I was telling him that early in my career, I was uh, exposed to, Erwin uh, Singer in his book Key Concepts in Psychotherapy. And I was really struck um, with Singer when he said, pay attention to your viscera. And so viscera has accompanied me in my work for all of these years. And when I think of Steve, I think this is a man who understands something like that. And so, Steve, welcome uh, to this uh, podcast. I'm so pleased you'd be here. And what I'm just saying here is how much I appreciate you and how you locate your theories and practices and how they emerge from your very own being, your body, your heritage, and your own talents. Like when I read you, I know that you're a jazz jazz man. There's a movement, there's a nuancing, there's a playing off of, and uh, it's just uh, really uh, fun for me. And your work is very heady, but it's deeply grounded in who you are. And so I wonder if you can tell us a bit about who you are and how your very being is ever present in your work as a theorist and as a practitioner.
1: Well, it's hard—it's hard to add to what you already have offered, but um, I'll, I'll touch on a few things that I think are important um, in terms of who I am and who I've become. Uh, and, and I think one is that uh, I. Was born into a neighborhood. I was born to parents, but obviously living in a a lower uh, a lower class working uh, working class working class neighborhood. But it was a tough neighborhood. I mean, I was uh, I mentioned in my book that I was introduced into physical fights. I was initiated at three years old when uh, I and my best friend were forced by the older boys to face off, and um, so uh, I've always this naturally uh, from those times been probably as attuned as anybody to uh, embodied signals of safety or danger. Um, And I think that uh, that's been very helpful because from the moment a patient walks into the office, uh, into the consulting space, I, I feel that I'm communicating something to them. Uh, with or without words. They surely are commuting, communicating something to me with or without words. And uh, that kind of experience that I had as a child, which was a bit traumatic, to put it mildly, um, you know, as ultimately with several good analyses helped me to um, uh, harness that experience in a constructive way. I, I, I think also uh, that led me to become an athlete Athletically involved. I played a a lot of basketball. Where I grew up, there wasn't much to do. So, you know, you either sat on a stoop or you found something like basketball or you got in a lot of trouble. Um, For me, I played a lot of basketball. And uh, and that's very fast moving and uh, unpredictable, a lot of uncertainty. Um, You know, everything's on the line all the time. You're either winning or losing. And uh, I think that. That was a major factor in my development, developing my sensibilities. And then I think that's probably why I, I got uh, attracted to jazz. Also being, you know, uh, going to high school where 70% of the uh, student body was African-American. So there was a lot of natural stuff happening around rhythm and blues and, and uh, doo-wop and jazz. Um And the thing about jazz that's so great is, of course, you don't know what you're going to do next, even though you've had a lot of experience doing it. But if you if you get too repetitive, it's really it's not real. It's just you know it's like faking it. Um, And the real thing is to be vulnerable, to be uncertain, and to respond. But you get you get real clear sense of what to do, how to play, from the way things are happening around you. So I think that was as is important to my training as anything else hmm yeah
2: you know and so you introduced to us um, through that history of yours and and the basketball and the um, the jazz you introduced terms uh, such as attending to subtle embodied cues matching and mismatch matching fluidity navigating recognition non-recognition Tending to micro moments of multiple affective states, patterning and linking, and your use of poly- polyrhythmic weaving, a non-Western jazz musical concept that you refer to in your book, you know that does not privilege, as you say in your book, the primary beat, but privileges a meter that is fluid and recognizing and valuing contrasting rhythms. It's such a powerful metaphor in your work. Do I have that correct about in terms of polyrhythmic reading, uh, weaving and how you've also chosen language in your theory? around uh, very much from from this idea of where you come from.
1: Yeah, well, um, I, I might say it a little differently. I wouldn't say there's a primary beat. Um, polyrhythmic, uh, which I've learned very well from um, my Brazilian teacher who uh, grew up in a favela and at 14 years old was trained and recruited into one of the most popular uh, samba, uh, samba reggae groups in the world, Chimbalada by Carlinhos Brown, who's a kind of superstar over in, um, in Brazil, but also was a person who was very, very much of a community activist, and he actually developed his group out of uh, young people in the neighborhood and then with the success of the group, developed all kinds of educational training experiences, and the neighborhood is now no longer much of a favela. It's much more uh, sort of middle class but I, I i what i learned is that it's not there, that there's a primary beat that there are a number of beats and they weave together and so um, if you try to find the center you get lost or or you follow you go one way and then you miss everything else that's happening so there's a way in which you kind of have to sort of stay open and and take in you know you, you kind of you know find the right kind of What do they say, Uh, you know, in music they say getting into the groove or feeling the vibe, you know. I was reading something that Racker wrote in 1968 in his Transference and Counter-Transference book. Most people only read the chapter, you know, the famous chapter, but one of the other parts of the book talks about tuning into the patient's vibration. And I was thinking, "Eh, he must have been listening to the Beach Boys or something like that. (laughs) That's great,
2: but that that is a a real marker in your work, right? Listening to the vibrations of the patient,
1: and you. Yeah, and there and knowing that there there are multiple strands, we're all woven out of many different influences, and to try to not be too seduced into formulating or knowing thinking that I know things, Mm -hmm. even though it's just a knee jerk, inevitable. Thing that we do, and you know, having been privileged to go to an Ivy League school, coming out of Jersey City where I grew up, uh, it was a traumatic couple of years before I adjusted. But I learned to um, to uh, use the, the 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 discourses of sociology, psychology, philosophy, history. So um, now the challenge is how to you know avoid uh, getting locked into discursive. Um, prisons you know and I do that I think we all do that we use words and we fall in love with them so polyrhythmic is one that we could fall in love with and they can be elucidating but they also can be confusing and um, misleading Um, they can can appear to represent something when they might oversimplify it and reduce it and I'm always in chapter 3 of my book I talk about uh I call it found in translation. Perhaps.
2: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Say more about that. I like it.
1: Well, I I was starting to speak about it. I I think that words sort of have at least two registers. One is their representations of very complex experiences. And in that representing or symbolizing function, they reduce things. They lose things. They lose dimensions. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's like, describing sex versus having sex. I mean, you realize there's there's something lost going from one to the other, from the lived experience to the, the description. At the same time, words are embodied. I mean, uh, a particular word can evoke uh, a, a tremendous emotional response. And uh, it can do that in terms of its familiarity or its unfamiliarity. It also can do that in terms of the the volume, the tone, the pitch, the cadence of how it's pronounced. So it's complex stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, um, so what I hear in that, and I wanted to ask you if you could say more about your idea of re-present with the re-present. dash um, And one of the, uh, I don't know if you know the, I think 11th century mystic Meister Eckhart, but he one of his things is, I pray to God to rid me of God. And so it's sort of what I hear you saying of, I got a term here, but as soon as I reify it, I'm going to lose it. And so, how can it keep re, re-, re- how can keep re- pre- keep presenting itself in a new way and not in a reified way? I think that's what I'm hearing you say, right?
1: Yeah, and it's very difficult. Um, it's challenging, but it's not impossible. Um, and what makes it possible is others, mm. uh, because I think we we're constantly. Bring a kind of uh, a, a sense of surprise, a sense of unknownness. Steve Mitchell wrote about this in his last book, *In Love Last*, where he suggested it's not familiarity—the uh, the, the, the traditional idea of familiarity breeds contempt—that that that gets in the way of um, uh, difficulties in, you know, um, connecting uh emotionally with another what gets in the way is the more we get to know uh, another the the more we realize how much we don't know the other
2: yeah that's nice
1: and um i think our challenge as analysts is to recognize that we're we're going to find that place in ourselves and our patients where that fear is, is is um evoked and then to stay in that fear Um, In the way that Winnicott, you know, talks about um, surviving annihilation, you know, Mm. Mm -hmm. it's a it's a fear of annihilation, actually. Um, Yeah. But I think that 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 uncertainty, um, vulnerability is not easy. You know, I can preach it. <laughs> exactly, right. But uh, I don't practice it any better than anybody else. It's it's very right. difficult. But I think we all, you know, when I think of my colleagues' work, the best work comes in those moments when, not when we think we know, but when we know that we don't know. Yeah. And then we open yeah. ourselves up to something new emerging. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, when I'm hearing that, is when we think we know our patients, um, in a sense, we've lost them, right? Because we've now limited to, oh, this is what they are. And this is the idea, the problem sometimes with interpretation versus dialogue or relational dialogue that was introduced where we're, oh, in fact, you say something about this in the book, and I'd like you to say more about it. The idea of containment, that containment shuts the, the, the fluidity. Uh, down, but say, can you say more about that actually?
1: Well, I think it's 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 kind of riding that wave of paradox uh, that that we're we're trying to get at as we try to use words together to to uh, evoke this uh, this experience. Um, and i I think that it's very important. I mean clearly we need to have orientation and we need to have uh, uh, cognitive awareness of our place and relationship to each other, in in our communities, professional, social. Um, But every time we kind of have um, a dimension of our identity sort of locking in, it it has the potential and often does uh, block further growth. Um, You know, there was a definition of masculinity in 1954 that changed in 1964, that changed in 1974, et cetera. And it keeps changing. Um, and, and who I think I am in relationship to that definition or, you know, the definition that I think I have of it keeps changing. Um, but at the same time, we need those anchors. We need, need those oriented places, placements. You know, we, we place ourselves socially, racially, ethnically, um, professionally, you know, I'm a, I'm an early career development, I'm a senior, uh, you know, teaching person or whatever. Yeah,
2: well, I think that's what I, um, which, in, in, in the first question I had around you is that, um, the beauty of your work to me is that mm-hmm. you have reflected upon your, your Stevenness, if you will, like yeah. you, where you come from. What you're what you are who you are what your talents are and and that's that an idea I think of we to be able to be a good musician or improvisationalist we can't do that unless we know where we stand and one of the things that I know I'm teaching a lot about these days is in order to to do this work you have to be located you've got to know your you got to have not know yourself but receive yourself and and in that then you can be dislocated by the by the music of your patient or by the things that begin to come your way or change you. And I think that's what's striking to me in your writings and in your personhood is you kind of know who you are. And by being there, you're able to be shifted around a bit. (laughs)
1: That's interesting, I have to think about that. But I I think for sure that uh, however you uh, achieve it to the degree possible, um, the key is to, to be open to that shift. Um, And I I think, you know, I don't know whether it's more difficult. I think it's more difficult on two ends of the spectrum when you become too overwhelmed with trauma or when you become uh, too overwhelmed with power. Um, I think those are two things which can uh, significantly get in the way of that openness and that continuing to change and the need to continually change. And the richness of, of uh, emotional, interpersonal, uh, collective experience that comes from that ability to, to, to ride the wave of, of, um, of unfolding life. Yeah,
2: yeah. When we were, um, um, before I want to go into that, is there anything else you want to say to the listener about the body? And its and its role within um, doing tra- it in, in treatment, because hmm. so often we I believe um, are cut off and and psychotherapy in general is traffic sort of as a cognitive
1: exercise. That's right. It's and you are coming, yeah,
2: yeah. And you are coming and saying, ah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it begins in the body. Uh, and I'm wondering if you want to say. And help help us understand more of this powerful idea.
1: Well, I think to um, us, yeah. I guess uh, if you think of what you just said as uh, psychotherapy emerging in you know in the in the Americas um, out of the psychoanalytic movement in Europe, and Freud's initial uh, technique, which was to try to make us aware of what we're unaware of because of shame or guilt. Um, then, um, we start with a real powerful focus on, uh, consciousness and on cognitive functioning. Um, and, and we've moved, and I know that in my lifetime, there's been so many, um, related therapies that have developed a lot of body-based therapies where people manipulate the body or bring attention to the body. My sense is, I guess, somewhere, uh, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, I think there's value to, to that work, but I, I'm i saying that in our work of helping a patient to face into the trauma that's keeping them from living more fully, um, that attending to their body and the, the micro dimensions of that, their gaze, does it meet your gaze? Does it avert your gaze? Does it go to the floor? Does it go to the ceiling? um their their facial expression you know um how uh frozen is it how evocative is it how uh evo- ev- evocative of uh sadness or or laughter humor um and their movement you know a lot of people speak with their hands and uh, they move their head and lean forward and back and breathing we're aware of breathing and Pace. Some people take, you know, very fast, and and they're in the staccato when they talk, and other people really do something, you know, like this. You know, with a little pickup in staccato, and most of us are moving back and forth, or you know, through different versions of that, and it very it gives a lot of information about how we're feeling, and so not that we should just pay attention to my emphasis is not just pay attention to our patients but to pay attention to ourselves because one thing we've learned from relational psychoanalysis and the interpersonalists and even from Freud with the idea of transference and countertransference, is that what we're experiencing is very much influenced by what our patient is experiencing now i'm not going to say that you know everything that we experience is projected into us from our patients. Some of it might be worth wondering. It's worth wondering if my chest begins to tighten, whether I'm picking up something in my patients, you know, becoming fearful and becoming uh, a bit more constricted. And I think those wonderings are good. I'm not a big fan of saying, well, my the back of my neck started to, to hurt, so it made me think of my patient's potential sexual abuses. You know, I, I wouldn't make it so concrete, but I would wonder, you know, what does this mean? Is this something that, that uh, we're, we're getting into together? And that's what I'm feeling, like when you get into the water and it's cold or it's warm. So that's, that's the value of attention to our bodies. And we're, we're um, it's not easy. You know, and we're not trained to do it for the most part in our psychoanalytic institutes.
2: Yeah. And in general, in general psychology either, because when you were talking, um, you were talking about, you know, watching, observing our patient's body. Right. Mm -hmm. But the the thing that that is is that you add to all of that is as we're attending to that patient's body we're not objectifying them in a sense and saying, that's what they're doing. We're saying, how is their, my, my experience of their body now finding itself in my body? That's right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's really powerful, isn't it? But it's what a major shift because in so many ways we're, we're saying, oh, the patient must be feeling this because their, their eyebrow did that. And you're saying, no, how did that eyebrow hit you? And what might that have to do with the patient? The right. whole paradigm shift in terms of uh, of the work. Um,
1: that eyebrow eyebrow raise might have all of a sudden alerted me, you know, drawn my attention in a direction where I would have not gone if I was just thinking, "What is the patient saying? What is the patient meaning?" And not paying attention to the patient's eyebrow.
2: Yep. And another aspect of relationality, and that I also hear in your work, is that we're also being read. Our bodies are being read. All the time. And how do we invite the patient to be able to speak about what they're
1: reading, right? That's right. That's right. And that's very complex because often you cannot have a conversation with words about that. You have to allow it to unfold um, because the patient uh, could easily not be with you. You have to go slowly. Like, what are you talking about? You know, they might feel attacked, uh, accused. Um, and, um, so it, it's, uh, it's an interesting process. Uh, it takes a lot of patience, but it t- takes a lot of, uh, careful vigilance. Um, but you know, like any other kind of uh, practice, if you do it enough, you can relax into it, and it becomes something that that is easier the more you do Actually, it. Actually, absolutely right. And I think people forget that when we all started learning how to be clinicians, it wasn't easy. And no. you know, all you have to do is supervise somebody who's in there, you know, still not you know in their gra- graduate level, and you realize how many things that you take for granted that they're still learning. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's like, you know, I also think in terms of music, it's like playing guitar or saxophone. The more you do it, the more things come into your awareness that you can do with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Taking me all the way back to my dissertation where I was uh, evaluating what my my subjects were uh, teachers teaching in the uh, People's Republic of China just after it opened up. And uh, the only scale of all the scales that I offered them through the 16PF, the MMPI, et cetera, that actually had any kind of meaning um, was the idea of intuition. The uh, People who value, who are high on the intuition scale had more success in the first six months in another culture than if they uh, were using their cognitions. And I think that's what you're, as we develop that comfortability with like, let me, Intuit my way through this to improvise and to play. We're going to be a lot more. Um, yeah, it's going to be an easier yeah. job in a way, and a much yeah. more rich one.
1: Yeah, two things. Um, one is it's not th- this idea is an original. I'm, 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 I hope expanding and extending ideas such as Winnicott's idea of play, which is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, the point you made about, uh, well, maybe three points. The second being. To intuit is really um, – I don't know if we really have a good translation of what that means. No, I agree. I think it has something to do with being touched by the other person. Um, mm, I, you know, I mentioned mm. Bruce Reese's idea that um, embodied uh, uh, embodied communication, what the uh, infant researchers talk about on these micro – dimensions micro moment dimensions of shifting of gaze or accent or pause and speech mm-hmm. that that, uh, that he calls that the patient's address you know the patient's yes. address and, it, and it, it's it's a it's not only a way of saying in in the interaction this is who i am this is what i'm working on this is what i'm traumatized by
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's also an invitation yeah. an invitation like And it's saying, are you, are you wanting to do this? Do you really want to pay attention to me? You really want to go here with me? Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch.
2: Yes. I like that word. And, and uh, when I read it in your book with Reese and um, the idea of being addressed and is, will we respond to the invitation? And I think something that grieves me a bit in psychotherapy is often in our own fears and anxieties. When a patient says, here I am, we go, well, stay right there. <laughs> um, I'm not, I will, I want to take control of the invitation now as opposed to, well, what are you inviting me to?
1: Right. Well, that, that gets to uh, an issue which I address in the number of the clinical examples. I think I illustrated uh, um, actually in, in, in the clinical examples in each of the chapters pretty much, which is that a key issue in, in, um, in the work is when the patient feels uh, a sense of power and in order to do that, they have to f- feel that in relationship to us. That means that we are not the one who has the power in those moments. Right, right. So they're directing what happens. They're, they have more of an influence on how we feel than we have on how they feel, although it's fluid. You know, mm-hmm. it could happen in a, a tenth of a second or it could happen over, you know, five or ten sessions yeah um so uh again there's there's uncertainty there's vulnerability there which is you know these are my my uh battle cries
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i want to take us to uh, i i want to make sure we get to the uh, second of the last chapter of the book because that is a wild chapter i must say mm-hmm. but i know in our one of our last co- uh correspondents you had just finished a webinar with ir That's and right. you were yeah. very excited about it and said that ideas were flowing out of you and I know of that experience when when we speak and in fact this is a good example that if we are engaged in our speaking events uh, what uh, we become immersed in it and we receive back far much more than what we even prepared when we went right and so you said your mind was just flowing so I kind of don't want to interrupt that flow and let you riff for a moment on what did you experience during that webinar and what do you want to bring to us
1: I think uh it was kind of like a um, a microcosm of uh my career. <laughs> uh-huh, nice. And I think it, it's something that is uh more or less universal. And that was uh the frustration uh, uh of not being able to really find words which the whole book my whole career and I think all of our careers all of our theorizing and and even um when we just work with local theories with our patients what does this mean you know well, how do you say it how do i say it? that that something is always getting lost in translation yeah. and um it was interesting mm-hmm. people in the webinar and of course these are analysts from all over the world who, who are interested in this. They chose to be in, in the webinar. You know, we're struggling with what the different meanings of some of these words like polyrhythmicity, or when I used, um, you know, words from Franz Fanon, like, uh, lactification or, um, uh, petrification. Um, right. Uh, what, what do they mean? And, um, how well do they really capture what, They're trying to represent or represent, and it became so clear because here were you know there were about seventy five folks who really were motivated. I mean, can you imagine having a class of seventy five people who want to be there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sometimes we get seminars of three, four, five, eight. You know, Um, and uh, and there was a lot of difficulty with that, and and I I I was challenged to try to. Walk away from those words, which uh, I have a kind of love affair with um, yeah. as I've learned them or helped to develop them and um, and try to just speak in terms of uh, lived experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what I think I if I if I could judge myself, I think I would do that better when I start narrating a clinical moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Like you did in chapter Chapter four with, or not the chapter four, chapter seven, I think it is right with anon
1: Well, that's six. Yeah, yeah, but yes. Yeah. So I
2: want to ask you a couple things. Um, one is, um, what for for the for the person who's going to pick up this book and they're going to go to chapter six, mm-hmm. they're going to go, holy Moses, <laughs> what do I do with these words? So why don't you do your best at breaking down. Epidermal, epidermalization and Petrification, Latification and phantomization.
1: <laughs> Come on, Steve. Oh, Give us a oh, break. Do I have 15 <laughs> weeks? And, uh, no, well. you have, uh, you have uh,
2: one, two. There's four words. You get uh, uh, four seconds on each one.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, f- these are... Uh, I get to talk about translation. These are the the English translators of the French uh, original language that Fanon used, which was not uh, his original language as he was born in Martinique. Um, Right. And so uh, this is the best I can do as to what he was meaning the way I use it. Let's see. Uh, Let me start with epidermalization. um, Because this brings us into the, the other part of the book bodies and social rhythms. Uh, the mm-hmm. social being, uh, I think it's it, to use a term that uh, the uh, African philosopher, uh, writer, Ishil Mbembe uses. I think to talk about the social, we need to think not of linearity, nonlinearity, but reticularity, which is the way oh. that finer and finer networks exist in which we are an active part we are okay. so rather than think of identity as some kind of cohesive coming together to think in terms of all the different fine network ways in which we are experiencing ourselves and experienced by others i was talking about this with Stephen hartman the other day and he pointed out something that katie Gentili always reminds us of is that um when we talk about ourselves in our in our world we forget that we don't pay attention to the the inanimate world, what we call the inanimate world, which is really actually very alive. And Mm -hmm. for example, we think of politics, we think of gender, we think of race. We don't think of the fact that honeybees, without honeybees, we all might be dead. Right, right. Yeah, so the the epidermalization is the idea that uh, the color of skin becomes a marker of subjectivity. And a very powerful one, because for people who don't have white skin, uh, they have been considered historically by people who do as inferior. Um, and even though some of us, many of us, are, have been educated to think of that, well, that was a that was an an inaccurate anthropological mistake, which the anthropologists corrected themselves the late 19th century it, it that those kinds of thinking and the political and economic and social implications of that still live on in our lives often unconsciously even
2: well so if i understand that that correctly uh the idea epidemic
1: epidermalization
2: is is it particularity within a network
1: it's a particular way in which one becomes uh, uh marked um, yeah. And stereotyped.
2: Okay. Yeah. Okay. All
1: right. In the same way that we might do it with gender. Oh, she's a woman. Of course. He's, oh, he's a man. Of course. Yeah. And then, we, you know, we have this general stereotypic, you know, oh, he's from Africa. Oh, she's from Asia. You know, mm-hmm. and we, yeah. um, and that's supposed to mean that we understand a whole lot of things that are true of everybody, you know, who's who's ethnically or gender or racially yeah. or other, you know, socioeconomically class, you know, I come from Jersey city. So what do you expect? You know, kind of thing. Right, right, right. Exactly. And yeah. I had to live with that for a long time, feeling like right. I didn't deserve to be respected because look, I, you know, I didn't know what the heck was going on. I came from Jersey yeah. city. Yeah. So that's, that's the uh, epidermological, the, uh, Petrification. Petrification, what Fanon meant by that is, is, and I think it's really important, it's not the same thing that we mean uh, when we talk about um, dissociation. He, he talked about uh, the way that the kinds of beliefs and practices which make up and, and then which, which permeate the discourse, the language, uh, lead to uh, a kind of freezing and a deadening of possibility yeah. for someone who's been abjected. Yeah. So that could okay. be a woman. It could be a child. It could be a person of a different race.
2: Well, and it also comes back, I think, to our earlier conversation, even around words, where how we will petrify uh, our own traditions, our own cultures. That's right. Um, yeah. And we become denominational and um, categorical and all those things. Good. Right. right. Lactification. Sounds like Kleinian breastfeeding.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you can. Lactification came from one of his translators. I think it was in the latter. There are two major translations, and I, I'm not remembering the names of the tr- translator. But in Black Skin, White Masks, which, which is probably, well, it's one of the two most influential books by Franz Fanon, and the one that has so much that can speak to psychoanalysts and psychotherapists, uh, particularly about race and about identity, about recognition. Um, uh, he's pretty good with that. And, um, the idea of lactification was that there's this belief unconsciously often carried, uh, through social, uh, norms by both the, the colonizer and the colonized or the oppressor and the oppressed, uh, the one who's more powerful, the one who's less powerful, but they both share the belief that to mm-hmm. be white is best and that to be not white is to be inferior. Yeah. there, the, There's a, a couple of uh, folks in our field, Eng, Eng and Han, who wrote a book uh, about uh, Asian, uh, Asians in uh, Asian immigration. And they talked about the, the Asian attempt to assimilate um, mm. and the, they use a, a, a description, which I, I think they may have even used these words where the Asian would feel they would assimilate. It would be successful in so many ways, but, and so they would consider themselves white, but not quite. Yeah. And just the fact that you have to have that as a marker, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. let's, let's face it. It's, in many cultures, there are, there are those kinds of markers, um, yeah. but that's what he meant. Uh, that's what they meant by he meant by lactification, that both the colon- um, colonized and the colonized believe yeah. that you know that and are haunted by that. Yeah,
2: Tony Morrison said, uh, "In this country, American means white. Everybody else has to hyphenate," hmm. and that kind of takes us to what you're saying. I think.
1: Yeah. We don't think of ourselves as Euro
2: Americans. No, no, it's the call. Con- yeah.
1: So, phantomization. This is this is. L- let me thank people like uh, the young Daniel Butler, who's who's just name is just kind of uh, breaking in psychoanalytic the- theories. Wrote an mm-hmm. incredible paper about this, and uh, uh, well, let me. It was basically his his distinction between fantasy, the fantastic, and the phantomatic. So fantasy is something that we carry in our imaginations, right? It's it's yeah. our it's our uh, way of representing things, uh, it, and it it sometimes has a has more or less radicality with uh, social with lived experience, but we. we We speak of fantasy. It's Kleinian notion. The phantomatic is the idea that um, something is there. Uh, And I think think here,
2: to point out to our listeners, because they can't see it, but it's the PH phantomatic, right, that you're talking, and not the fantastic FA,
1: right? right? Like phantom, phantom, as opposed to phantasm. Um, And the phantom is a presence of an absence. uh, Yeah. Francisco Gonzalez in discussing uh, Daniel's work calls it uh, like a phantom limb effect. Yeah. So we have sense of something there, but it's, it's, it's not there. We have a sense of some of the, of the presence of absence. That's the best way to put it. Yeah, that's good. And what uh, Fanon is saying is that when he, when he worked with his patients and he was very interested, very influenced by Freud, and he read Freud and Young and uh, uh, Lacan. He was very influenced by Lacan. He, he was saying that I just, uh, my work is not just to have the patient remember, it's to remember their history, the history mm-hmm. which has been amputated through a kind of petrification process, yeah. so that it exists phantomatically. And there are people like Kirkland Vaughn and Kathy pogue White and others who are African-American uh, uh, colleagues of ours who write about the presence of slavery, the presence yeah. of slavery, of the history of slavery, in, yeah. not just in, in the consciousness and unconscious of patients of color, but also all of us. Yeah. And of course now it, it's more out there also in the social, socio-political discourses. So good.
2: So in this uh, chapter, uh, in our last few minutes that we have, yeah, you talk about this patient and one of the powerful things, given these terms, by the way, that's really, you just did a good teaching (laughs) uh, on that chapter. So good good job. Tried to translate. (laughs) Good job. Uh, But um, one of the things that struck me that is so important to me in uh, our culture and race relations, et cetera, is a concept that you're, uh, I'm gonna say introducing there, is the concept of non-recognition um, that is powerful to me in terms of advancing our conversations? Uh, not only in psychotherapy, I would say that basically all psychoanalysis is a misread, uh, and we're trying to get a better read. And if we could apply that to culture as well, but you know we have um, cultural competency classes and what have you, and it's just like that's, basically that doesn't work, and it's it's a di- it's a miss misrecognition and you introduced to us the power of transformation through non-recognition in this, in this chapter. I loved it. And I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit uh, briefly about the case and how you came to understand that concept within this case.
1: Well, I have to say, uh, let me give credit to, uh, reading, uh, the recent work of Sally Swartz, who is very uh, from South Africa, a psychoanalyst from South Africa. Mm. It's really, you know, I've been in, in, um, ongoing, uh, dialogue with Sally and, and her ideas have really been helpful. And, um, and the other place where I, uh, I've been helped is actually, uh, in, um, uh, for the end of black skin, white masks, Fanon discusses Hegel and he talks about recognition, uh, recognition of the black man. And I think it applies to almost every group that feels somewhat, uh, othered, um, you know, a person with a a physical disability or, um, you know, ADHD. Uh, I I work with a lot of patients who feel very, um, less than human with that. Uh, and, um, and also race uh, and gender. And what Fanon said is in order to recognize the recognition that Hegel describes is recognition in terms of the one who has the power it's recognition in, 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 in terms of their discourse. So, you know, uh, I might say, uh, well, you can, um, you know, you're, you're pretty strong physically, but um, you're not, you know, you're not that good with mathematics. So I don't think as much of you, but um, you know, why is one more significant? Than the other both very important. And, you know, we okay. all, or some on a, on a continuum with, with regard to both of them. So his main point was that recognition seems to always be culturally contextualized in, mm-hmm. in whose terms are we being recognized? Yeah. And, um, this is one of the, you know, the limitations, uh, it doesn't take anything away from Jessica's great. Jessica Benjamin's great, uh, theorizing about recognition, um, and about, um, the doer and the done to, but the question then arises in what context with what terms, you know? And so for example, to make it a little bit more concrete, a patient who's uh, getting angry and is often interpreted as resisting may in fact be, be, be expressing some kind of, uh, liberating vitality to express their agency that you have generated for them. Right. Right. You have not made them angry. You've given them the power you've given over your power to, to allow them a wider range of their emotional expression and saying,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I'm not going to be destroyed. You know, as Winnicott points out the month, the good uh-huh. mother, the, the appropriate mothering response is not to be annihilated. Right. Taking can take in the message, uh, you know, and then we could go to all kinds of other, you know, alpha, alpha beta, you know, beyond ideas. But to to realize that recognition is is very tricky, can be culturally yeah. relative. And that. Also, well, I was going to say that non-recognition can be more powerful
0: to exactly. accept
1: that you don't understand the other person is to give them that agency of yep. being opaque. This is something that, uh, Edward Glissant, who's, uh, an amazing, uh, writer from the, um, Caribbean writes about opacity. Mm -hmm. And we, we don't generally value that we, you know, you you really have to see everything and understand everything. And, uh, and you should be open. Well, I mean, we don't walk around naked. (laughs) Right. Well, it's, it's the same
2: kind of thing, um, that, um, I, I fight against it a little bit. It was with the idea of rupture and repair. It's like we get it all good. We get it, we have a rupture, but we make it good, and we make it good because, from my context, I saw you. And what was powerful about your case is the the non recognition. I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about how that happened between you and your patient, and how it was how it had. It feels like it's still in process, but
1: yeah, I, I think it's unfolding. But the the particular micro moment that I described was when. Um, I I was, uh, it was very mundane. The patient was struggling with some decision with his uh, then uh, uh, girlfriend about uh, where to live. And I was, you know, focusing in on, well, let's look at some strategies. And, you know, at one point he just looked at me and said, you don't get it. You know, I'm, I'm black. You know, where I live as a black person has a lot to do with it. I mean, yeah. I'm paraphrasing it, oh, yeah. and rather than fight him or apologize, I just, you know, I could, I just took in my my body's response to that, and I felt that in retrospect, and you know, in the moment, I had no capacity for reflection other than to pause, but I I felt my pause probably reflected a kind of place where. I couldn't place myself where he's trying to show me that he can't place himself. And no. his observation <clears throat> of my struggle more than anything else, I think was uh, communicated that he had impacted me, that I, yeah. I there was nothing I could say, nothing I could do other than um, allow him to experience my loss of professional you know, Um, equilibrium, maybe, Yeah, you know, and uh, it gave him a sense of his own power. And, you know, as I mentioned, without going into a lot of detail, subsequently and continuing to this day, he's increasingly uh, come into into awareness and expression of his own agency in so many different ways.
2: Yeah. What's coming to my mind, uh, Steve, is um, you're not getting it. Got it. <laughs> so, in a weird, weird way, non-recognition becomes recognition and empowering.
1: Yeah, you could. He felt, yeah. Seen. I mean, he felt a, seen. Yeah, those yeah. words work as well.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're trying. I'm trying.
1: Well, Steve, uh, it's been
2: wonderful to be together, and I'm wondering if you have any last words for the uh, for the listeners of the huh. podcast today.
1: Well, um, let's see. If I step back from everything we're talking about today, I would say, hmm, yeah, well, a word comes to mind. <laughs> um, I would say that a word that we need to allow into our lexicon is, as uh, clinicians, as helpers, people wanting to rescue folks suffering uh, in trauma is struggle. Mm, mm -hmm. we shouldn't expect and in fact if we're not struggling something isn't right yeah and learning to struggle is i think essential to life we somehow have this world where we we are creating all these technologies so everything will be done for us or made it easy for us not against that (laughs) i love myself including my lawnmower (laughs) but (laughs) but um you know, it's a struggle sometimes with the lawnmower. <laughs> and, uh-huh. you know, uh, when, we're, when we come out of our mother's womb, we struggle to breathe. We struggle to move. We struggle to figure out what the fuck is going on, you know. Right, right. Yeah. I don't think it changes much. No. <laughs> the, 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 the terms and the surroundings change, but I think it's okay. I think that's good. I think that yeah. makes life worth it. It makes it feel yeah. good and real yeah you know it also yeah. sometimes makes it feel really bad and unreal. Yeah, but I think struggle is the word that today's discussion brings forth now that mm. you asked.
2: Mm. Steve, thank you so much. It's been a very rich
1: time to to be with you. Thank you. Right. Thank you. It's great to see you again, Roy, and thank you for spending this time with me.